Good morning. Um, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. Hey. Uh, today, we are talking about the unforgivable sin. That's right. They gave me the passage on the unforgivable sin. Uh, Art stole my opening line a couple weeks ago when he was giving Matt a hard time for the passage that he was given. Art, I don't know where you are. I would have traded. But... Uh, if you are unfamiliar with this, there is a passage in the Bible where Jesus declares a sin as unforgivable. And if you uh, had heard that before, let's say you're, you've been a Christian for a long time and uh, you've, you've heard this in discussion, you might have left those a little confused. If you've never heard this before, if you're potentially uh, not a believer or, you, or you're a newer Christian, you're like, wait, what? What? I, I've just raised a ton of questions for you. You're probably thinking to yourself, um, okay, is this true? Is there really a sin that can be forgiven? If so, like, what is it? And, and what does this mean for us? And in light of all of this, I am really excited about this morning because uh, this is something that I feel like has a lot of direct implications on us no matter where you are in your journey. So we're going to go ahead and jump in to the text. Uh, the text today is in Mark 3. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open it to Mark 3. We'll be going from there. If you do not have a Bible and you would like a physical paper and ink Bible, please raise your hand. We'd love to get one into your hands. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, take it. This is yours. We want to be men and women who are in the Word, and so we'd love for you uh, to take this with you and study it. Um, last week, Steve reminded us not yet, sorry. <laughs> Last week, Steve reminded us that we, God is a with us God, uh, and, and he calls us to be with him. He wants us to be with him, and, and he calls us to, be, to eat with him and, and walk with him. And, um, and today's passage continues to build on that as we understand that he almost draws another line. He almost kind of like ups it a little bit. Because what he's doing today is he's beginning to answer the question a little more thoroughly about who he is and as we understand more about who Jesus is, he's actually answering the question more about like, what does it look like to be a part of my family? And as this relates to the entire series in the Gospel of Mark, this really tells us more and more what it looks like as he is redefining the good life. So follow along with me, Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Then he went home, Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, as we long to know you and want to step into your word, we ask that your spirit would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning, that you would draw us more and more into your love. You'd give us a clear picture of what you are calling us to as your followers. So God, we just pray for this time that you would protect us, you'd bless us, you would fill us, and you would be making us more and more into the image of your son. And so, Lord, it's in this we lift all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Dating back to the 19th century, there's been uh, an apologetic argument or or a defense, uh, which was an attempt rationally to force people to answer the question of who Jesus was. It's now referred to more commonly as Lewis's trilemma, even though it might not be attributed directly to him. Uh, but it really says it's, there's, there's three things you can do with Jesus. That's it. There's three things you can say about him. And in mere Christianity, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, while many scholars attribute this argument to a variety of theologians between the 19th and 20th centuries, I'd like to point us back to the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Here, Jesus' family has called him crazy, and at the beginning, at the end, they're trying to constrain him or limit him or quiet him. And in the middle part, we have these religious leaders who believe the only rational explanation is that Jesus is evil. It's no coincidence that there really are only a few options for how you can decide who Jesus is. And that's why Mark has organized these stories this way. And that's why he's presented it, as most scholars would agree, in this sandwich format. And now as an individual who really appreciates scholarly work and also really appreciates sandwiches, I think this is going to be helpful as we understand what he's doing here. See, we have three parts. We have this first part and this last part, which are complementing one another. They're the bread. And then you have this middle part, which is really the important part of a sandwich, right? If you have just two pieces of bread, it's not a sandwich. Don't fool you. The middle part is what matters, and it's the, the meat of the subject, if you will. And what he's doing, the writer is emphasizing that it's all pointing to that. In the first and last part, we have his family who is trying to bind him or lay claim to him. But in the middle, he's the one doing the binding, 
And all this points us to the thread of this passage where Jesus is really answering the question, who am I? And in doing so, we have to answer that question, who is Jesus? And if you will land where I believe Lewis landed and where I land, where he is Lord, then he gets to explain what it looks like to be a part of his family. He gets to redefine what the good life is. It's not about blood. It's not about religious affiliation. You don't get to claim him for yours. Being a part of Jesus' family means he claims you. And so today, we're going to be talking about two things. We're going to be talking about the difference between those who try to lay claim to Jesus and those whom he claims. And then finally, what do we do with this? Like what, how do we respond to it? So first, let's go ahead and talk about the people who try to claim or bind him. Verses 20 through 21. Then he, this again, this is Jesus, he went home back to the house that he was, and the crowd gathered again so that they, the disciples and he, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Basically, they were saying he's a lunatic. Like that is a harsh description of somebody. Jesus goes back into the house. People are about gathering around him, and there's so many people there he can't even eat. Uh, remember what Steve said last week. Uh, he was talking about how people were drawn to the power of God. They saw what Jesus was doing, and they wanted that. They wanted, they wanted access to whatever he was offering, but they wanted the power without the person. And I think our culture has started to sort of dabble in this. I've been listening to this podcast that's really been talking about how um, the, the general desire for the moral Christian ethic of the world is we want what the Christianity offers in peace and freedom and joy, but we don't want Christ. The way they define it is we want the kingdom without the king. And that's exactly what is going on here. These people wanted what Jesus had to offer, but they didn't want him. Now, you hear his parents say, oh, we got to go get him. Don't think that his parents are sitting there, his, or his, his mom and his brothers are like, oh, goodness, Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, you got to eat, brother. You got to take care of yourself, buddy. Like, it's not okay. You, we got to go get him. He, he's not okay. He loves these people way too much. He's nuts. That is not what they are saying. See, what they're doing is coming from a place of a culture that is really focused on this whole idea of shame versus honor. And what an individual did had a lot to say and implied many things about his family. And so Jesus' family is looking at Jesus and they're incredibly bothered by him. They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, if you're going to be part of this family, like this is not how we act, <laughs> which how many of us have ever said that to our kids or perhaps heard that from our parents? They are embarrassed embarrassed by him. When I began to realize what was going on here, I thought to myself, oh man, have we ever done this? Has the church ever been afraid of what associating ourselves with Jesus would say about us? Where we've sort of shied away from taking a stronger moral stance or maybe speaking out against sin? I know for me, in the church, there have been times where I've been afraid to say something because I didn't want to be labeled a legalist or a fundamentalist. And outside the church, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be labeled weird or intolerant. But what his family is doing here is they are ashamed of him and they are trying to save face 
by calling him a lunatic and quietly escorting him out of the limelight so he can't offend them any longer. I've realized that there have been times in my life, and I don't know, maybe you can think of the same for yourself, where I actually really valued other people's opinions above my Lord's. And as soon as I thought of that, I remembered, not in a good way, but we're in good company. Peter did it on the last night of Christ's life. But it made me realize, man, I don't want to be like that. Father, forgive us for the places where we have lessened your message out of fear. You see, what we try to do here sometimes is we try to fit Jesus into our box, into our grid. We try to put him in our camp. And Jesus is saying, he's like, no, you don't get to do that. The church, I think more recently, has tried to respond to culture by taking away some of the things that Jesus has said and saying, no, 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 he, he, I don't feel like that's what Jesus would say. He would say it this way or he would respond this way. But the truth is, guys, like you don't get to claim him as yours. Now, that's not to say that Jesus does not have a side. Oh, he absolutely has a side. It's just his side, not yours, not ours. And any time we try to alter something to make him fit into our side, we don't get who Jesus is. See, Jesus sees his family, and potentially others, trying to dictate the way he will interact with the world, and he says, no, you don't get to choose that. You can join my side. I will not join yours. In fact, he sort of doubles down so the, the last part, the second piece of bread, uh, he is uh, confronted with his family again. Now his family comes, his mother and his brothers, and they're outside. Again, wherever Jesus is, they're never inside with him. They're always outside. And they're calling to him and saying, Jesus, come out. Again, they're trying to quiet him. They don't like what he's doing. And the people around them are saying, um, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And so he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Which I can imagine everyone there saying, they are. <laughs> we all cleared this up. And he's like, no, 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 no. My idea of family is very different from your idea of family. See, my idea of family, whoever does the will of my father, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is the will of God? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. There, there is clearly something in obeying the will of the father that is, a, is obedience is hearing the word and responding to it and putting your trust in what he says is true and good and obeying him. See, that's what makes you a part of Jesus' family. So we have these two pieces of bread. His family is calling him crazy and trying to quiet them. But these two pieces of bread are pointing to the meat, the middle section, the, the chunk uh, that the writer was really trying to emphasize but it's interesting here that we don't just see a completely different tactic. We actually see another group of people also trying to bind Jesus. We have these people who are scribes, as it says. And at the very beginning of verse 22, it says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, this might seem like a really insignificant piece, but... Let's kind of paint the picture for you. The scribes were the lawyers of the day, the religious lawyers. They were in Jerusalem, the holy city, which was elevated. Again, that's why they came down from Jerusalem. But what they did is they left the holy city of Jerusalem and then traveled 100 miles north to Galilee, which 
by the way, was not a respected area. They didn't like going to Galilee. They really enjoyed their life in Jerusalem. But what happens is they are sent as spies because whatever Jesus is doing, it's bothering some people. And so these spies are sent out because they are, they know the law better than anyone. They are uh, studiers and knowers of the law of God. And they're trying to figure out what is going on here. Who is this man? And so they have to come to a conclusion. Is he a, her- is he a heretic? Is he a zealot? Is he a reformer? Is he a danger? Wait, is he actually, is there a risk that Rome's going to hear about this and they're going to send someone to take our power away from us? And they're like, we, this is not okay. We've got to figure out what's going on. So they show up on the scene having a whole lot of information about the law and what God had been calling them to and what he was going to be doing in the prophets. And their logical conclusion out of all of this is, oh, he must be satanic, which just blows my mind. Because if anyone had all the information, it was these guys. But what they show up is they say, he must be getting his power from Satan, which tells me two things. One, they saw incredible power. Again, you, mind you, people who did not believe he was who he said he was saw the evidence and were like, oh gosh, like he's performing miracles. What we're seeing is spectacular. He, he, must, be, he must be satanic. He, he's not looking at them as the family said and he's just crazy. If he had been saying a bunch of things, you could have just said, oh, he's just crazy. No, 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 no. They saw the power and they were mind blown by it. But the second thing this shows me, which I find humorous, is that they came to this conclusion and then they actually responded, revealing it somehow. Somehow they revealed in Jesus' presence that they had deemed him as pure evil. Now, I don't know if it's, if it's just me, but if I'm sent somewhere as a spy and I learn that this individual who is out of his mind and is performing these amazing signs and wonders around them and that my conclusion in the midst of all of it is that he is pure evil, I'm not openly refuting him. <laughs> I'm slowly and quietly turning away and getting out of there as quickly as possible. I just shake my head when I begin to think of what's going on here because it doesn't make any sense. They compare Jesus to Beelzebul. So, who is Beelzebul? The name is attributed to the idea that he is the Lord of the dwelling or Lord of the place, which really means he's the Lord of the earth. That's what they're saying here. And there's a lot of passages in scripture that give Satan this, this, this idea that he has, he has power. I'll say that. Uh, in John uh, 12, 31 and 16, 11, uh, he is called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air. Don't get this wrong, brothers and sisters. Satan has power, but he's not in control. Thank God. There's a lot of places in scripture that kind of reveal that. Satan has power and the scribes look at Jesus and they say, oh, this power must be from Satan. I just, imagine with me, like picture, what does it look like for Jesus to be performing these miracles? Like if it's me, I'm thinking like, he's smiling, he's laughing, he's excited, he's passionate, he's generous, he's kind, he's sacrificial, he is loving people incredibly well, and then I see these people calling him evil, and it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm stunned. And then, if I'm Jesus, I'm angry. (laughs) But that's not what he does here. 
I love what Jesus does here. It's fascinating. He, he takes all this in and he makes the most rational, <laughs> logical argument, like potentially in, in much of scripture, which is a man who loves rational arguments is really grateful for because he's basically saying, wait a second, are you kidding me? I, I can see his face. He's like, oh, what? you've got to be joking. If Satan is attacking Satan, but if, if that's what you think is happening, like it's over. Like if Satan is the one who is casting out Satan, if, if a kingdom is divided amongst itself, like just start the t- stopwatch. Like it's about to end. There's no way this thing lasts. He talks about this in a second, but he's like, you think he's, you think he's, he's, he's doing this? Like, no, he, he wouldn't be the strong man then. He'd be the incredibly weak, frail guy who's about to pass over and die. He's, he's not powerful but the thing is, like, if he is powerful, and what I'm saying is what, you're, what you say I'm doing, then you're missing it. You're completely missing it. Now, this is a little bit more complicated for me. Um, for some reason, I was thinking of the family. I was like, I think of the ways of church that we've shied away from Jesus, that we've been embarrassed by. I'm like, I don't like that. That's not okay, but I'm, I, can, I can think of what that looks like a little bit better. But the people over here who are trying to quiet him down, I look at them and I'm like... How on earth have I ever looked at the work of God and declared it pure evil? Like, that just seems like way more of a stretch for me. I can't get my mind around this. But, but as I was considering all these things, for some reason, I was brought to the book of Job. Now, last semester, uh, the men who did the Discovery Bible groups got a chance to spend eight weeks in the book of Job, which is just not enough time for the book of Job. But we, we, we got through the whole thing, all 42 chapters. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the book of Job, um, Job is about this man who God is sort of using as a way of explaining uh, who God is, but he kind of uses his man as a pawn. But at the beginning of Job, uh, chapter 1, verses 8, this is what God says about Job. And the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Like I look at that description, I'm like, I want to be like Job. <laughs> Don't you? A blameless and upright man. It found, sounds powerful and God's, God's for this man. And then you keep reading. And for those of you who are familiar with Job, starting from that point on, God proceeds to strip everything away from him. His, his, his wealth, his possessions, his family, except for his wife, who's not super helpful at times in this. And then in the midst of this misery, he brings him three friends. And these three friends show up. And these three friends are basically spending the next, from the end of chapter 2 through chapter 37, battling back and forth on, no, 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 you don't understand. This is who God is. And Job's like, no, that's not who God is. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you must have sinned somewhere. You've sinned. God doesn't act like this. And he's like, but I haven't. And he is. And for 36 chapters, back and forth and back and forth. And finally, God shows up after Job questions and questions and argues. And Job, God shows up in verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 38, And from chapter 38 through 41, if you've never read Job 38 through 41, it's fascinating. It is four chapters, basically of God saying again and again and again, hey, I am God and you are not. And there's a lot of sarcasm in it too, which kind of throws me off. But God is continually beating the drum of this is who I am and you don't know what you're talking about. But that's where it ends. He just continues to reveal more and more of who he is to Job. But what upsets God the most 
is in verse 7 of chapter 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, this is one of his friends, my anger burns against you and against your friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Like, this blows my mind that you can spend 37, 36 chapters angry at God. You don't make any sense, God. What are you doing? He's devastated. He's heartbroken. He's hurting. I mean, God's like, you don't know me. But what really upsets him and so much so that he actually requires Job to make an atoning sacrifice for sin. It's sin, what these friends did, is to say things wrongly about God. You have not spoken of me what is right. And that I can attach myself to. When have I offhandedly spoken wrongly of God? When have I thought I knew him and even in the church, like, I would take a scripture, a text, a proof text, and I'd be like, well, this is who God is. And he's like, no, 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 you're missing it. I'm much bigger than that. You don't get to define me. Both camps, we try to do this in both ways. God is not okay with that. In fact, he says in Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, and now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. I love the way the NASB says it. You thought I was just like you. He's not. We may not blatantly deem the work of God as evil, but we might often miss him and wrongly speak of him. I don't want to miss the significance of this. Like this actually has some implications for those, those of us who know and love Jesus. And I think our call then is to, as Hosea 6.3 says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. We must seek him. He does not take it lightly. So let's jump back to the text. Jesus refutes these scribes with impeccable logic. And then he says in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, the scribes, like Jesus' family, are trying to bind him. They're trying to confine him. They're trying to limit him. And Jesus is fighting back and saying, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get to do that because you think I'm the devil? No, 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 I'm stronger than the devil. I'm about to bind Satan. Satan is the strong man in this example. Satan is the strong man, the ruler of the world. But what is Jesus doing? What is he saying here? He's saying, no, I have entered. I have come into the world to bind Satan and to plunder his house, to pluck out individuals into my kingdom, to free them. He's not only not Satan, he is stronger than Satan. We sang this earlier. Our deliverer, you are savior. In your presence we find our strength over everything our redemption. God with us. That's what Steve talked about last week, right? God with us. He is a with us God. And it's because he came. He entered into the world to bind the strong man, to plunder his house, and to free us to be part of his family. And all of that brings us to these verses. Chapter 3, verse 28, 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. We have to view these two together because actually at the outset, they actually look a little contradictory, right? We have to view these together. What's going on here? Jesus is starting off by saying what he says, amen, or truly, which is a definitive declarative truth that a lot of people tend to miss. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. What's he talking about? All sins? Well, clearly not, because in a couple of seconds, he's going to say the exact opposite. No, 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 no. All sins, what is he doing? He is saying that he is binding the strong man. You say Satan's a strong person, he's powerful? No, no, I'm more powerful. And I'm freeing the world by coming in and forgiving sins. He's ripping the power of Satan off of God's children. But that second part, what does he mean then by saying, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness? Okay, let's break this down. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? What, why, why was he sent? This is great for us to understand because Jesus tells us in John 16. So in John 16, starting in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That's the Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, the Spirit was sent in the world to convict the world of sin. To reveal what is righteous and to judge he was sent to help us realize our need for a savior. So what would blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be but a dismissal of his purpose, a rejection of his role, a failure to agree with the Spirit's revelation and a refusal to see your sin and your need for a savior. But there's there's. I want to calm some fears right now. I have, a, I have a feeling there's people in this room who are thinking to themselves, um, I, I know I've rejected the Spirit's prompting at times. Like, I know, I know I have. I know I've missed it. Are you telling me that I've committed the unforgivable sin? James Edwards, uh, one of the scholars who study this, says it this way, which I think is very helpful. It is imperative to note that Mark places this saying as a warning, not as a condemnation or cause for anxiety. The same saying that warns against describing evil to Jesus also assures of God's willingness to forgive all sins and blasphemies of men. Anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. If you're afraid of committing the unforgivable sin, praise God, you've not, for, you've not committed it because that is coming from a heart that longs for repentance. It is only the unrepentant heart that can commit the, the sin of the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why verses 28 and 29 have to be viewed together. See, there's two options. There's two camps. You're either in the camp of people who all sins, children of man will be forgiven, or in the camp of the blasphemers of the Holy Spirit. In the camp of people who are saying to themselves, no, 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 I, 
I, I need a savior. You've listened and responded to the Spirit's calling on your heart and you've said, no, I, 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 need, I need to repent. I, I can't do this on my own. You're inside the house with Jesus. You're the ones who he's pointing to and saying, this is my family. You've put your feet, yourself at the feet of Jesus and you're listening and longing to do God's will. But the other camp, the other option is to say, no, no, I don't, I don't need that. If you are on the outside of the house, then this passage, as the scholar put it, is a warning. It has direct implications for you. If you've never recognized your sin, your need for a savior, one who is willing and able to forgive you, as Jesus says, all sins of the children of man will be forgiven, then you are at risk for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The only sin that can never be forgiven is from the heart that doesn't recognize your need for, for uh, repentance. It can only reject. If you're listening to this and you're realizing you've never come to a place where you've seen the sin in your heart and your need for a savior, where you've never come to a place where you believe that God sent Jesus into the world, that he's doing the work of the Father, that he is inviting you to be a part of his family, then repent. This passage is for you. You're in the strong man's house and he has come to bind the strong man and free you. The spirit right now is working to convict the world of sin and point us to our need for a savior. Heed the call because by not, and this is what this passage is saying, by not, you're on the level of those who are deeming the work of God as evil. If you don't believe the spirit is right, you're basically putting him up with Satan. See, we live in a world where there's a lot of gray, right? Like this is just culture. Everything is gray. But what God's saying here is that, no, there's two choices. You either reject or you receive. He is either the devil or he is Lord. And if he is Lord, then he gets to choose. He gets to lay claim to you. If this is you this morning, you've never come to this place, my desire is that today would be the day that you've been waiting or maybe really even debating and you're like, I don't think Jesus is who he says he is. It doesn't really make any sense. The scriptures don't allow you to just say he's a good person. He, he's one of three things. He's either a liar, he is on par with the devil of hell, or he's crazy and he's out of his mind and we should all flee from him. If he's not those things, which is where I've landed, he is Lord. Accept him. Receive him. Pray in your heart and say, God, I don't, I don't get it but I, I think I need you. I know I need you. I'd love to talk to you. Come talk to me after the service. The elders who are serving you communion later, like, don't take communion, but come and see us. We'd love to talk more with you. But if you are in the other camp, if you are inside the house, this passage is not nothing for you. This passage is a warning for you as well. Because if he is Lord, then he actually gets to lay claim to everything. See, he... To be Lord, as Lewis said, we must fall on our faces before him. He gets to choose. He gets to claim us. We do not get to pick and choose the things that we like about Jesus and ignore the others. He wants all of you. Um, I've had the privilege over the past year, and I say privilege with incredible pain. Um, God has been fighting for my heart 
And as I was reflecting on this passage and realizing, like, what does it look like for me to actually let him be Lord, I've realized that there are places in my life where I had just sort of been really okay with sin in my heart. See, I'd constructed a world where I got everything that I wanted, and people liked me for it, which was the best kind. I was able to get control and friends, which is hard to do. So I was incredibly prideful, and I was arrogant, and I was selfish, and I had some incredibly kind brothers, one in particular, who looked at me and he said, oh, you're a con man. And when he said those words to me, it wrecked me because I'd been realizing, it, realizing in my heart that I had made God work for me in a way that gave me what I wanted. And he was looking at my heart saying, I don't have that yet. I don't have that yet. I'm not in control of that yet. And I'm saying, yeah, I know, because I don't trust you. And he's saying, okay, why not? Try me. And as I begin to wrestle with this, and by the way, my sharing this is a humongous violation of all that has been going on inside of there, which is why I knew is what I had to do. God was inviting me, saying like, you want control? You want the good life? You've been painting this picture of the good life and it's all wrong. If I am Lord, if I am your Lord, I get all of it. You don't get to control it anymore. And you get to share this with people and risk that they're now not gonna like you. Because I'd been using people, I'd been manipulated, I'd been orchestrating, and my life had been working until it suddenly didn't. See, for me, the good life was getting to put myself as Lord. And Jesus wasn't okay with that. See, if Jesus is actually your Lord, then you get to do what Lewis said and come to the conclusion and declare him Lord and then make him as such. The thing is, is as we begin to wrestle with the things that God is calling us to, the places where we haven't called him Lord. He'll probably invite us to pursue him more because there were things in my life where I realized like I didn't like things about God and it's because I didn't like things about who he was that I, was, I didn't trust him. And I don't know if you've, if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, I, most likely you've actually come to places where there are things about God you don't like. If you've never come to a place where there are things, that, there are God, things about God that you don't like, like keep reading. Um, there's stuff there. Like I'm currently doing the whole reading through the Bible thing. I'm in like Leviticus and Numbers. Like there's some stuff in there that you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Or that seems unkind and yet I'm consistently battling with the reality. It's like, no, if he's good, and if I read the whole of scripture, there are going to be things I don't like, but God still invites me to say that he has the good life for us. He doesn't want us to think that our control is good. He doesn't want us to think that what we have is the way it should be. And I don't know what it's like for you, and I, I thank God we have the spirit, right? I pray that right now he is convicting you, individuals in this room, of ways in which he has not been made Lord in your heart and that he's actually doing some work right now. That's my prayer. Because God is just, he's so far above anything we can imagine. He doesn't make sense to us, which is why he calls us to keep pursuing him. Because if we don't know him, then we're going to make these mistakes. We're going to deem him as crazy. Or we're going to try to explain him away. Or we're going to call him evil. I don't, I don't, it sounds a little hard, but if we don't recognize his work as good, there's no other option. The good life is letting Jesus claim you, define you. And as we begin to see more and more Jesus revealing who he is, we're invited to choose him as Lord, which is why we come to the table every single week. 
Like we are reminded every single week that we who have submitted to the Spirit's prompting and recognize that God has called us to be in his family and has freed us from the strong man's house, that he gave everything for you. He gave his life for you, his body and his blood. And when we take those elements, we remember who he is. He's Lord. And the beautiful thing about the table is both this call, this warning, make him Lord in your heart and a reminder, you can't do it on your own. He actually convicts and then does the work with you, in you, for you, through you. He's good and he's kind. And then when you realize parts of your heart and you begin to confess them to yourself and other people and you begin to realize that your world is being deconstructed, he's there to say, no, 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 you're safe. You're a part of my family. I've got you. If, if you have not come to this place, this table's not for you. But it could be today, right now. Listen to the Spirit's prompting. Receive him as your Lord. We have three choices. He's either crazy, out of his mind, and dangerous. He's either the devil of hell who is not to be trusted. Or he is your Lord. If he is your Lord... This table is for you. Let me pray. Father, you have given us your word and even parts where we don't necessarily like it or get it, you are using it to speak truth into our hearts, to invite us to be freed by the gospel that you want the good life for us, which isn't the good life that we have written out for ourselves. It's better. So Father, as we come to the table today, I pray that you'd be drawing us more and more, reveal in our hearts the ways that we've missed you. Help us to see how you long for us to know you rightly and actually in it to be called to love others well and invite them into it as well. Lord, we thank you. You came for us. You want to free us and that you're doing the work in our hearts even right now to continue that work. So as we receive this, Lord, may you continue to speak your truth over us and make us more and more into the image of your son. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are in his family, this table is for you. We invite you to come.